Jonah chapter 4, verse 1. But it displeased Jonah exceedingly, and he was angry. And he prayed to the Lord and said, O Lord, is not this what I said when I was yet in my country? That is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish, for I knew that you are a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. Therefore now, O Lord, please take my life from me, for it is better for me to die than to live. And the Lord said, Do you do well to be angry? And Jonah went out of the city, and he sat to the east of the city and made a booth for himself there, and he sat under it in the middle of the shade until he should see what would become of the city. Now the Lord appointed a plant and made it come up over Jonah that it might uh, be a shade over his head to save him from discomfort. And so Jonah was exceedingly glad because of the plant. But when dawn came up the next day, God appointed a worm that attacked the plant so that it withered. When the sun rose, God appointed a scorching east wind and the sun beat down on the head of Jonah so that he was faint. And he asked that he might die and said, it is better for me to die than to live. But God said to Jonah, do you do well to be angry for the plant? And he said, yes, I do well to be angry, angry enough to die. And the Lord said, you pity the plant for which you did not labor, nor did you make it grow, which came into being in a night and perished in a night. Should I not also pity Nineveh, that great city in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know the right hand from the left and also much cattle? This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Father, as we close out this book, uh, we pray that our hearts will remain open to the message that it brings to us. From many angles, a message of judgment and mercy and grace. Lord, we pray that that would be the grace that was given not just to the Ninevites, but to Nineveh and also grace for us, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, church, I'm not sure if you recall seeing this coming across your news feeds uh, this last summer, but uh, up in Everett, Washington, on July 4th, when they would typically have their huge 4th of July fireworks show, un- unfortunately, it, it didn't occur. Um, in, this, in this case, it wasn't a matter like 2020, where people were given advance notice, hey, the show's not going to happen this year, make other plans, do something different. No, in this case, it was a matter of everybody is perched, everybody's ready um, for the Thunder on the Bay fireworks show. It's known for being one of the larger shows in the region. And people were stationed in Legion Memorial Park. People were in Grand Avenue Park. People were placed all over, like you might expect. Children are sitting with gleeful anticipation, but then no show. What happened was... The pyrotechnician had an issue. The main computer that was supposed to time everything so that the you know half hour or so show would go perfectly, the main computer went down. You think, well, come on, man, don't you have a backup? The backup computer went down. And so all these people ready and no show. The prophet Jonah, the son of Amittai, he sits like a child on 4th of July and he's got an ice cream cone in hand. He's got one of those little dinky American flags. Well, in his case, probably a Northern Kingdom of Israel flag. And he's waiting for the fireworks show to begin. 
He's waiting for judgment. But no rocket's red glare. No bombs bursting in air. Nothing. What was supposed to come about does not come about. He was sent to declare a message of impending judgment. What was it? 40 days and then 4th of July. Judgment is coming. Nineveh shall be overthrown. But to our shock, to my amazement, you read, and these wicked Ninevites, they repent. They, they repent. And we find while they were originally living in rebellion, they were a people who were living for violence, it says. They were an evil, an exceedingly evil and wicked city. They had this idolatrous pursuit. They took joy in tromping on people, in murdering and killing people. But they repent. But then on the other hand, we've seen also something else in this book, haven't we? We find Jonah is in an idolatrous pursuit too. He is living not for the murderous warfare. He's living for his religion. This morning, through an object lesson, we come to see, as this book closes, what Jonah is living for. And through this, we have revealed to us what many of us are tempted or are indeed living for. And being that it's been just a couple weeks since we've been in this book, I'd like to rewind for just a brief moment, like a movie, kind of go back and fast forward so we can see where we're at in this moment. And then as we do that, you and I were going to see action occurs. Jonah's doing particular things. And then we'll find that there's a dialogue between he and the Lord. And as the book concludes, it leaves us in the last verse or two with this question that just hangs. And it's left us with tension. So first, let's rewind. As we opened up with the book of Jonah, we began to see that Jonah, he, he is a prophet of God. And strangely, he's been a prophet who has been successful in his ministry to the northern kingdom. But here we scratch our heads. He's running from the Lord. And he is running from his call and his mission in life. And one of the first things we caught was this. When it comes to the Lord, you can run, but you cannot hide. God will chase you down to the bitter end. And we were surprised when Jonah ends up boarding this boat and he's trying to escape from his mission. He's, he's on the run from not only his mission to Nineveh, but he's running from the Lord. And we found the pagan sailors on the boat were the first ones to seek Yahweh and offer up sacrifices. And we found that there was a particular way that they could calm the storm. What was the way that they could bring the storm all to a cease? It baffles the mind. It was a, a particular sacrifice was made. If a man was to give up his life to save all the lives of everyone else on the boat. And so we found this particular looking forward to the work of Jesus in the work of Jonah saying, I know that the only way to appease the wrath of a holy God and a righteous God is sacrifice. And so upon his instruction, what happens? Well, the sailors throw him overboard. He's drowning in the sea. And even as this judgment's coming upon Jonah, we find the outrageous mercy of God. He had already planned in advance that when Jonah would be sinking down, this fish would come, this whale would come and swallow him up, providing salvation for him. And, and Jonah, from the belly of the whale, as we saw in the goofy birthday picture, from the belly of the whale, he cries out in his most clear-headed moment, Salvation is from the Lord. 
And we find then, as he declares this good news, that salvation is from the Lord, it's actually for the guilty repentant who hope in him. This good news then, was exactly what was received by those in Nineveh, the Ninevites. They, they, they recognize their guilt. They're seeing their violent, evil ways. They repent. And to our shock, it was not just a mere outward repentance. This was not just for show. Something had truly changed in their hearts. They begin to put away their, their vile, wicked ways. And we saw that God will be merciful with those who hear the word, who in their hearts believe it, and outwardly and inwardly repent. And then as we begin to close this book, we find we come face to face with two responses to God's grace. Two responses that this elicits in you and I. God's grace arouses either anger or appreciation. And here this morning, we're going to double click on that. We're going to see that theme as we, as we finish out here, seeing this morning that the reasons for living must be greater than the gifts that God gives us. Let me say that again. The reasons for living must be greater than God's gifts that he gives us. Now, as we turn to see the action that takes place in verses 5 through 8, I want you to consider, what is Jonah's real concern? What's, what are his real desires here? In other words, what is it that Jonah is living for? Look at verse 5. Jonah went out of the city, and he sat to the east of the city, and he made a booth for himself there, and he sat under it in the shade until he should see what would become of the city. Now we see Jonah here, he's very much, as I opened up here, he's like this child. He's, he's waiting for 4th of July to begin. He's expecting judgment to rain down on Nineveh. Perhaps he's thinking back to Sodom and Gomorrah, where God did send rockets red glare, where things did get destroyed, where the city was taken out. And at this point, Jonah just needs to wait. How long? Well, he just needs to wait. Well, remember the, the call was 40 days and then Nineveh shall be overturned. He goes through the city. He's giving, um, what? He's giving, you know, three days, maybe four days at most. He's declaring about this coming judgment and the Ninevites are hearing about his story and perhaps inside the, the whale and they're, they're receiving this, this um, repentance and grace. And so all, all you have to do is sit back and wait maybe 35 days. And so he's got a, he sets his, his uh, stopwatch and he's thinking, countdown, I'm just going to sit here and wait. And, and Jonah, as he's waiting, he creates for himself a little hut to hang out in. Um, you know, he's perhaps he's uh, sitting there maybe with these rocks sort of like piled up around him as he's kind of got himself a, a little blind and he's sitting there. And then what's revealed in this moment is while being a believer in the Lord, see Jonah at this point, it's not as if he says God no longer exists. While believing the Lord exists and is true and real and is a God of grace, he has a divided heart and an immature desire to see people face judgment rather than God's grace. I wonder if you notice that not only has God extended grace to Jonah in saving him from drowning, but at this point, God would have every reason to take Jonah out. He's extended grace to him in bringing him up out of the whale, but seeing that his heart had not changed, and even though he had been successful in his ministry, it, it, finds, it, it seems that he would find uh, in Jonah a, a prophet that he should do away with 
After his successful ministry that he's preached, it, it would have made sense for him to say, look, Jonah, your heart's not changed away with you, and to strike him dead. But the fact that God still has patience with Jonah right here in these closing moments, I think it reveals something to you and I. God is still extending grace even to his people when they have a long, long way to go. Which, church on the mountain, that means for you Christians here, God is still patiently at work in you, even though you and I, we have a long, long way at times to go. And here he'll teach Jonah a particular lesson. We see this in verse 6. At this point, Jonah is sitting in what is probably, you know, this little blind, like I've said. Perhaps he's tried to shelter himself from the wind, from the sun. And while his head is exposed, you know, there's times where he's probably thinking, wow, this is so hot here. And you, you know if you've seen on YouTube or other places where they've done those experiments, we're going to time-lapse these plants growing, and we're going to play for one metal music, and we'll play for the other one classical music, and the one that's got the metal music kind of like slowly is like doing this, but the one with the classical music is just, it, it, it takes off, and it's really interesting. And you see that time-lapse where it's just for us a few seconds. And I wonder if it may have been something like that where very quickly this thing comes up uh, rather, rather quickly and is now covering Jonah's head and he's kicking back in the shade thinking, this is, the Lord is preparing for me a perfect place to watch the fireworks show. This is all good. And you could see then as quickly as this thing comes up, it becomes what is a gift to Jonah. Um, this is a gift from the Lord. You, you goofy Monty Python fans, you'll know that this is a blessing, a blessing from the Lord. And, and that is how Jonah is viewing this. He's filled with joy. The NIV reads, Jonah was very happy about the plant. So I ask you this morning, what is the plant that you are happy about? What is your happy plant? What is it that makes your life more comfortable? What is it that blesses you? What is it that God is, is giving you this gift in your life and you relish in it? Is it your career? Is it finally your lack of career, your retirement? Is it your home, your husband, your wife, your kids, your quiet time, your next vacation? What is it that turns out in your life to be that happy plant? We all have happy plants in our lives, all of us. What is your blessing from God? Well, then we turn to find something interesting here. Just as quickly as this, the Lord had caused this plant to grow up, something happens here. We then turn to find out the very thing that the Lord provided to bless Jonah is taken away. The Lord appoints this worm and the worm probably, I don't know how big the plant stock would have been, but just begins to eat very quickly at it. And it doesn't take long before this whole thing begins to topple. And now Jonah is exceedingly upset about the loss of this blessing. Well, just as I mentioned, we all have plants in our life that bring us joy. We also have worms in our life that bring sorrow and disappointment in your life. And bring discouragement. So think with me for a moment. What in your life might be that you are facing right now? Your worm. What's the worm in your life? Could it be your husband, your wife, your kids? Just kidding. That would not be good. 
More realistically, maybe the worm in your life is something that brings loss. See, the the worm brought loss. So I'm wondering, could it be a loss in your life that has become your worm? Could Could it be the loss of physical health? The loss of extra funds in the bank? Is it the loss of a spouse? The loss of notoriety within your workplace? Is it something else? What is your worm? Is this not the repeated pattern of our lives, Christians? The same song that Jonah sings is the same song we sing. You give and take away. You give and take away. But Jonah will not sing the second half of the chorus. He will not say, still my heart will say, blessed be your name. No, 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 no. He, he, he says, you give and you take away. And for that, my angry heart will say, I'd rather die. You give and take away, and I'd rather die. Everyone has a plant in their life that they're happy about. The blessing of God, the gift that we are grateful for. And we will know that that plant has become an unhealthy love in our life when we respond like Jonah here. I'd rather die than not have my comfort. Because our main joy can too often be the gifts that God has given to us. The good blessings that we should rejoice in. But too often, our joy can be in the gift and not in the giver of the gifts. So we see, give thanks for the gifts. Give thanks for the gifts. But cling to the giver of the gifts. Conversely, when we cling to the gifts, this leads to the sin of idolatry. Is not idolatry in throughout the scripture one of the main repeated issues that we have? From Genesis chapter 3. Uh, all the way to other issues we consider throughout Scripture, like what is it that drives Pharaoh mad to insanity? Is it not his idol of power and control? Isn't that what led the Hebrews to uh, out in the wilderness so quickly turn from Yahweh who provided for them to the golden calf? Isn't idolatry the main issue of the hearts of the Pharisees in the New Testament who declare we have done it right and so we are good and you are not? All the way to the younger Christians who still wrestle with the the fleshly sins of the world. So that Paul says in 1 Corinthians 10, Therefore, my beloved, flee from idolatry. All the way to John, who says, Watch out what you love, what you most love in your life. Because we're to love God, and we're to love each other, and we're to love God, and we're to love each other. And then he ends the entire epistle with, My beloved children, keep yourself free from idols. And it is also why it is pictured in the narrative framework of the book of Jonah. So that cover to cover, we'd see our main issue, even in the Ten Commandments, basically, it's all bound up with this. You shall have no other gods before me. Nothing else should so grab your attention and your affection and your joy more than God himself. So we're moving now from the action of Jonah and the plant that grew to, uh, uh, to, the, to the worm that devoured it. And now we begin to get into this dialogue between Jonah and the Lord himself. There's some questioning back and forth here. And so we see this dialogue. Jonah's object lesson brought him to a place where he outright says, I'd rather die than live. If this is the kind of world that you're going to place me in, Lord, I'd rather not be here at all. And the Lord patiently asks him a probing question. Rather than just saying, okay, Jonah, You'd rather not live? I'll go ahead and give you what you want. No, rather he mirrors back to him. Is this a good thing, Jonah? It's like the Lord holding up a mirror to us and saying, 
Look at yourself. Is this a good thing that you are angry like this? And Jonah responds, yes, I do well angry to be angry, angry enough to die. So in opposition to the work of the Lord that, that he did, Jonah, he calls it an exceedingly evil thing. Remember that back earlier when the Lord brought grace to Nineveh, he says, this is a wicked thing that you've done. And then he sits in anger and he says, this is a good thing that I do. So he judges God. And his judgment is, God, you are wicked for the, your actions, and I am right and good for mine. And Jonah now calls his unrighteous anger a thing that is well, to burn with anger over the Lord giving and taking away the plant. But you know, and I know, the plant is not really what this is about. It was never about the plant. The plant was an object lesson. The object lesson is really there to reveal Jonah's heart concerning the Ninevites, concerning his ministry, concerning what he really worshipped, concerning what he was really living for. This is why this amazing minor prophet ends with a major question in verses 10 and 11. Look at verse 10 and 11 with me, where, again, where the Lord said, And you pity the plant, for which you did not labor, nor did you make it grow, which came into being in a night and perished in a night. Should I not pity Nineveh, that great city in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know their right from their left hand, and also much cattle? I think this question, I was thinking of it in terms, it's almost like beef jerky. Because if you grab a sip of of juice, you you just take the juice, you chug it, and it goes down quickly. and, And it hits your bloodstream quickly too. But beef jerky, you got to sit back and chew and mull this over and think a little bit more and let this percolate into places of our heart that we might not otherwise. You have to mull this over. I think this is where the Lord is really driving at something here. He's saying it like this. Jonah, Jonah, you were happy when grace and mercy came to you. You were joyful when I sent the big fish to you to rescue you from drowning. You were happy about the plant that I sent to bring you grace and mercy covering you. And you were bitter about the worm that I, that I sent to take the plant down. So Jonah, you're happy with grace, but you're bitter with judgment. And if that's the case, Jonah, why can't you be happy when grace is given to Nineveh? Can the one who received grace not be happy when others receive grace rather than judgment? And the question is left hanging. It's unanswered. It leaves us with tension. I think the Lord wanted this to echo out in time. The way the NIV phrases it is this way, you have been concerned about this plant, though you did not tend to it or make it grow. It sprang up overnight and it died overnight. Should I not also have concern for that great city of Nineveh? Jonah, I'm not giving them grace because they've lived perfectly. I'm not giving them grace because they've done everything right. No, while they were still sinners, Jonah, I am extending grace to them. And this morning, church, through Jesus Christ, we too have received grace upon grace. This morning, we are reminded that while we are still sinners, Christ died for us. Christ swallowed us. Up in death, and he was taken to the depths. He was one, the one on the cross who was burned by the scorching east wind. 
Jesus is the one on whom on the cross the Son baked him. He is the one whom is enduring the, the worm that brought judgment. So that he was pierced for our transgressions. And by oppression and a judgment he was taken away. Isaiah 53. Jesus then faced the rocket's red glare. The bombs bursting in air for our sin, for our judgment. So that what came to Christ will never come to you, Christian. He was crushed for our iniquities. All of this to bring you grace that the Ninevites really only got a taste of. For now in Christ, we have unhindered access to God, our Father. Now in Christ, we have every reason to lay down our evil and violent ways and pursue our community with the gospel message of good news. Jesus Christ came to save sinners like you and I. The evangelistic note of this book cannot be missed. If I can back out looking at the whole book for just a brief moment here, our church must embrace this book and become heralds for Christ's kingdom. Heralds of the good news. A good news to a dying people that if they knew the truth, if the people in this mountain community knew the truth, they would be begging us, tell us about the cross. Tell us about the good news. We need to hear this. And so by way of application for this book, I want to remind you that we need to preach this good news, but not out of a cold, dead heart of religion. If we've been saved from drowning, you and I, like like Jonah, we will with tears of joy begin to declare to the modern-day Ninevites that they can become saved too. And this effort is not for me alone up here. I hope you see that. Oh yes, it's part of my role. But it is for all of us shoulder to shoulder to do this work. And so I know there are many churches, and I've been part of a church that functioned this way, that said, here's how we're going to tackle this. Over this coming year, we're going to form an evangelistic team. And we'd like you to come down on Sundays after, you know, church service, maybe four o'clock. We'll all gather and we're going to go over uh, across the street or into the neighborhood here. And we're going to, you know, perhaps go knocking door to door. And when you begin to do this, what happens is about 10%. So say in a church like 120 people, maybe 10 people show up. Maybe 12 people show up if you're doing really well. And I recall when I would join on the team of this, I would go out and go home and... (laughs) doing pretty good, feeling pretty good about myself. And on the weeks where I I wouldn't miss it or don't go, I feel pretty guilty. Oh, I wanted to be there. Flat tire, flat tire this time. Tried to be there, couldn't be there. I'm so sorry. And you feel guilty. Uh, You have this competing senses of emotion. But this morning, I want to propose to you, church. I want to tell you about a whole new evangelistic team that is happening right here in our midst. I want to introduce to you not an evangelistic team that joins together of 10% of us. This morning, I'm introducing you to our evangelistic team that has been and will be and will continue to be growing. It's all 120 of you here. It's all of you. All of us side by side. Do you recall back from our time in, in the book of Nehemiah? Nehemiah, he goes back to Jerusalem. The walls of Jerusalem are completely torn down. And while they're completely torn down, he wants to rebuild these walls back up. And we found then, who was it who got to work on building the walls back up? It wasn't all the stonemasons. They're the ones with the technical knowledge who knew how to do this perfectly. But we saw amazingly in the book of Nehemiah, 
It was men, women, children, bakers, textile workers, perfumers, people who worked as shepherds, people who worked as iron workers, and people who were, who, yes, were stonemasons. Everybody got to work on building up the walls so that the city of Jerusalem would be protected. And our point that we saw then is just like that here in this church. Every one of you plays a role in this church body of evangelism. Nobody who is a follower of Christ here escapes this. This is good news for me because then I know I'm not alone. I got 120 other brothers and sisters who are working side by side right here with me. And And it happens in simple ways. It can happen when one couple invites another couple over for dinner. It can happen when one gal says, you know, I can't go anywhere. I can't do anything, but I'm praying for that couple who's meeting with their neighbors. It happens when still a younger person may help another person with a car repair. It happens while one man gives a a coworker a gospel resource, a handout, and gives it to him and says, let's talk about this. Meanwhile, when a a sister uh, calls uh, you know, her unbelieving brother and reaches out and tells him that she is praying for him. We are all doing a work of building up the kingdom. Everyone from nice acts of kindness all the way to tear-filled conversations about grace. All of them, every bit of it is all meant to bring us to this one point where you and I, like Jonah, declare 40 days and judgment is coming. 40 days and Nineveh will be overthrown. God is gracious, but turn and trust into the work of Christ, the righteous for the unrighteous. Do we not desire your friends who do not yet know Jonah's God to know him? And friends with us here right now who do not yet walk with Jonah's God. Right now this morning, we want to tell you that Jesus Christ, he died the death that you deserve. And he extends his righteousness to you here this morning. And so we call on you to believe this. And churches, you and I, we grow in our efforts here to engage this community with the good news of Jesus Christ. I want to remind you, it will be met with several things. Frustration, pushback, opposition, and disappointment. It will involve wasted time, wasted funds, and wasted energy. But by God's grace, he will still intercede with some. And I want to remind you in this, even as you're doing this, even as you might look around at your neighbors and you just are frustrated thinking these wicked people living in these particular ways that drive me nuts, I want to remind you of something that the book of Jonah closes with. They don't know the right hand from their left. It's a way of saying morally, not that they're not intelligent, The Ninevites were extremely intelligent. They were well put together people. They were very organized. They were methodical. That's not the point. The point is morally. They don't get it. And so would you view people who have yet to walk with Jesus in that term, in that way? They don't yet understand. They don't know their right hand from their left. So our heart should not just pity, but have this compassion for them. That they don't have yet have the blinders pulled off their eyes. And so let me... Let me close this book from an obtuse angle here this morning. Jonah's tale is one where we need to come and see again and again, told from different angles throughout the scripture in different ways. But one of the most brilliant ones is very much akin to the book of Jonah. It's the story of the prodigal son in Luke chapter 15. It's a story of a man who had two sons. And 
The youngest of them took the inheritance that was coming to him and he went off to a foreign country and he spent all of his funds and wild living. And then when he came to his senses, he thinks, I'm going to come back and I'm going to offer myself up as a hired servant to my father. Maybe he'll take me back and, and maybe I can you know, perhaps work my way back into the family somehow. But then to our shock, we find that the father welcomes him with open arms, embracing him. The father extends grace that was not deserving of the son. He gives him his ring, his robe, his sandals. And if that were not enough, he begins to slaughter the fattened calf so as to throw a party and celebrate with all the friends in the family that his rebellious son had gone off but has come back. But sadly, the elder son, who did everything right, who did all the steps, who did exactly what was commanded of him in the scripture, that son is angry. He's furious, just like Jonah, angry about God's grace, at his own father's grace. And sadly, that story ends too with a cliffhanger because the son remains outside the party. Jonah here is outside of the party with a son who loves the gifts of the father, but doesn't love the grace that the father gives, nor does he really seem to love the father. So that brings us here to our last point word in this book. Cattle. Look at verse 11. Should I not pity Nineveh, that great city in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know their right hand from their left, and also much cattle. What's, what's up with the cattle? Why the cattle? Who cares about cattle? Where else have you seen cattle in this book? Where else was livestock mentioned? Remember back in chapter 3? There, even the livestock were dressed up in sackcloth. The livestock fasted in repentance. It's interesting. Back in chapter 3, it reads this. By the decree of the king and his nobles, let neither man nor beast nor herd nor flock, let them not feed nor drink water or taste anything, but let man and beast be covered with sackcloth and let them call out mightily to God. Man only? No. Man and beast. Here in this upside down book, we find that the enemies of God, they are doing what they should be doing. They're repenting. Even the animals, the cattle partook in this repentance. Jonah, the Ninevites get my heart. Even the cattle get my heart. Why don't you have concern and pity and compassion for these lost people? Church on the mountain, the reasons for living must be greater than the gifts that God gives us. Your life must bend around his and not around what he gives. When our hearts latch on to what God gives us, our hearts will be like Jonah's and we will grow cold. When we get what we want, we become idolatrous. And when it's stripped away, we become angry. But let me close with a little poem that one of the commentators on the book of Jonah says. He says, Lord... As I grow older, do not let my heart grow colder. Lord, as I grow older, do not let my heart grow colder. Would you pray with me? Father, we pray that you would keep us free from the love of idols. And we pray that as we, in turn, desire to love you more, that we will love those who are in our midst more, that we would have compassion, 
not just for our fellow brothers and sisters in this room, but more compassion and pity and concern for those who are lost and yet do not have you. So give us your heart, we ask. Do the work that only you can do in us to mold us into your image, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.